Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Kent C. Dodds, who is a speaker, teacher, and trainer, and he's actively involved in the open source community. Kent is the creator of epicreact.dev and testingjavascript.com, among many other projects. Kent joins us from Utah in the United States. Kent C. Dodds, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software? <laughs> I, I think that maintainable software, it boils down to how changeable it is. Yeah, that, that's the only consistent thing that I find in something that's maintainable. Like if your product is something that never changes, then you don't need to maintain it. Right? So therefore, it doesn't need to be maintainable. The the only or most important characteristic of software uh, that needs to be maintained is uh, that you're optimized for change. What are some patterns that you think help lead towards making it easier or simpler for a team or a developer to maintain their software? Yeah, um, I actually have this thing I call AHA programming. That's A-H-A. It's similar to dry, except it's a little less dogmatic. Um, Basically, it stands for avoid hasty abstractions. Um, And the idea is that most maintenance problems that I've experienced are a result of hasty abstraction, where we are trying to solve problems that we don't have yet, or uh, we're trying to retrofit an existing abstraction to work well with a new use case. And we aren't very thoughtful about this. And so these use cases pile on each other and and turn into a difficult and complicated uh, mess to deal with. And that leads to software that's not easy to maintain. I I actually have a blog post and and a a talk that I gave about this if people want to go search around for AHA programming. And and actually, Sandy Metz has a really great uh, talk about this as well. And I referenced that in my talk and blog post. But the, the solution is to uh, optimize for change when you're uh, in the process of creating software, try to focus on solving the the problem at hand rather than jumping ahead to uh, building an abstraction that solves all the problems that you think that you have now and you think you will have in the future. Uh, and don't be so afraid of duplication. You don't have to commit the duplication, but like I, I find this in myself a lot where as I'm writing code, I'll, I'll think, oh, I'm going to do this a couple of times, so let me just make a function out of this. Uh, and so that's like at a very micro level um, of avoiding hasty abstractions, just like just type it again. Uh, don't, don't worry about abstracting it right away. Even that small, like seemingly micro um, decision that you're making um, has big effects because it makes a big change in the way that you um, approach things when you come back around to refactor. Uh, whereas if you start by abstracting things early, then your refactoring is how do I make this abstraction that I made a little nicer to use? Whereas if you hadn't created the abstraction in the first place, maybe you'd have an entirely different one or you'd realize that an abstraction wasn't necessary. And so, yeah, anyway, that's that's one of the biggest things that I can say is... Um, avoid hasty abstractions. And another thing, I guess, is when you when you find yourself in a code base that has a lot of abstractions that are difficult to work with, you basically travel back in time by backing out of the abstraction. 
this is something Sandy Metz talks about in her blog post that the, the title of it is escaping me, but um, it's, it's in mine. I, I reference it. Um, but you basically duplicate that abstraction everywhere that it's used, remove the parts that aren't needed in those different places. And then you look at it and you say, see whether there are any commonalities that can be abstracted at that point in time. And by doing it that way, you have much more information needed to know whether an abstraction is necessary and what that abstraction should do. Um, so anyway, doing those things, I think, can help create maintainable software. I think that's, those are some, that's some really good advice for those that are kind of in the early era of building new things and getting to have some say in the patterns and architecture that are going to be there. And then for those that are, like, say, listening, who are joining a team or a project or a company that has existing software, and they're like, okay, so... Maybe they made some hasty abstractions and you know, you were touching on it a little bit there about how you might start detangling that to make more sense of it and figuring out how to step back in time to figure out what was really going on back then. Do you have some advice for them on how to make sense of how, how do you go about getting comfortable in an existing application or code base? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I feel like I've blogged about this too, but I can't remember for sure. Um, some of the strategies that I've used, and, and like I've gotten to know a lot of different code bases because I contribute to open source a lot. And so that's maybe a little bit different from what we're talking about because in open source, it's often like drive-by contributions and stuff. Um, when we're talking about like you're joining a team and you got to know this code base. So um, focusing more on, on that end of things, I think that trying to go through a typical user flow and understanding the product that this um, software is, is backing is really, really useful. Um, getting to understand the vernacular that's used both for the, the user side of things as well as the, um, the back end and what you call like these entities or whatever, just kind of having a glossary uh, of terms can be really helpful. And then uh, as you're going through a typical user flow, uh, try to follow the code paths. And so you say, okay, well, here's the login. Let me find the code for the login screen. All right, once I log in, I'm taken to this screen. Let me find um, uh, the code for this and uh, follow the code through a, a real user flow can be quite helpful. Now, th this is obviously my, my UI centeredness is, is showing here, um, but I think this could also be very useful for backend engineers as well. You know, you think about the different endpoints that the user's hitting as they're going through all of this as well. So I, I guess, and even if, let's, let's say you don't have a UI and it's, it's 100% like you're building an API for other developers to consume, uh, it, it comes down, that, that's a principle that comes down to what are your users typically using uh, or how do your users use this? Uh, what order in which are they calling your functions, your endpoints or whatever, and follow that sort of flow uh, with the code base. Uh, that can be really helpful. Uh, the tests can be helpful too. If you have tests, uh, that's that's another thing that can help make maintainable software is a, a, a solid suite of good tests. And so they can sometimes be helpful, uh, especially the higher level tests like end-to-end -end or integration. Um, I find that lower level tests don't often give me a great understanding of the code base as a whole. Uh, unit tests might help me understand a single unit, but um, yeah, it doesn't often help beyond that. Yeah, those are just a couple of things I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> nice. Do you do you often use the metaphor technical debt in your day-to-day -day work? Yeah, yeah. I, so I am a full-time educator now, and so I don't work on a, a product with a team of engineers. 
but I do still have my own technical debt that I'm working through on on my own open source projects and and uh, my own projects that I'm working on. I, I know that lots of people seem to like shy away from that term. I I don't have any problem with it. Like I I totally understand. I, I think most people when you say technical debt, um, once it's been explained to them, they totally get it. To, to actually ship something, you have to take on technical debt. Software, like lines of code are technical debt. <laughs> uh, you, you can't avoid it. And so you're constantly making trade-offs on um, finding the, the best quality software that you can write for the, like, the, the least amount of cost to get your product out the door. Like your, your company doesn't exist without the mission that it's trying to push forward into the world. And if you um, spend all of your time trying to make the perfect software, which doesn't exist, um, then you may find yourself without a company uh, to support. <laughs> so, so yeah, like we're constantly making trade-offs. Yeah, I know that this isn't the best API today, but it's it's good enough to get us out the door to, you know, so that we still have funding uh, or whatever. Um, so yeah, we're, we're constantly making these trade-offs and I think that those things should normally be conscious decisions. And this is where avoid hasty abstractions comes into play, where sometimes we make these trade-offs without realizing that we're making the trade-off. Uh, and so we're paying a cost without realizing that we're paying that cost or, or forcing ourselves to pay a cost later on down the road. And so being mindful of like, this is not a good thing that we're doing. This is going to bite us in the future. Let's just make sure we earmark this uh, to, to fix this later uh, when we have a little bit of time. And uh, and then just balancing everything relative to the uh, return on the investment. And, and the currency of that is our time. Uh, so like maybe it's okay to, to borrow some time from the future by shipping this quickly, um, realizing that um, by... Uh, taking some shortcuts, we're going to have to pay um, with interest in the future um, because we we took those shortcuts. And I, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Again, like you've got to ship stuff. But I think too many of us make or cut those corners without acknowledging the fact that, and, and it's maybe not the engineers, but maybe like the product team or product folks are, are telling us, hey, we've got to ship this, got to ship this. And so we're, we're feeling pressured to cut corners. Um, but I think that that should be communicated and you say, well, I'm happy to, to cut these corners for you, you know, to, to borrow some time from the future. Um, but we are bar borrowing time from the future. And if, if you try to cut these corners now, this means we will not only be able to not cut corners in the future, but also we'll have to come back here and take more time to to fix this. And yeah, making that an actual conversation that you have with products folks can be helpful. It, it's frustrating to deal with a code base that where uh, those types of shortcuts were obviously taken. You know, at, at the end of the day, like the only software that matters is the software that accomplishes its goal. And I've never seen perfect software that does that um, because the perfect software never gets finished. <laughs> so um, you've got to make these trade-offs somewhere. Okay, you need to ship it one way or another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not like the cowboy coder <laughs> either. Uh, I'm all about just like be, acknowledging the reality of the situation. You know, you had some experiences where like say working with uh, like you, know, you do a lot of say, like with Angular and like Backbone. Do you have some good stories of how you were needed to help navigate some things and come up with some creative ways to make those things work together? Uh, yeah, creative ways is a fun way to put it. Um, so very early in my career, I was doing Backbone. And I just remember there was one 
one situation, I needed to add a single checkbox to reflect a value in the database. And uh, so I had to you know, cache that locally so that I could display it to the user. And then when the user changed that and hit save, that value got uh, persisted to the database. And that's the sort of task that shouldn't take any time at all, but it took forever. It took weeks because the um, backbone model and the view um, combined to be like 5,000 lines of code, plus like it was extending another um, view that was longer. It was it was just a disaster. It was very difficult. So I definitely have had my, my fill of maintainability nightmares, and I'm ashamed to say that I just made it worse, um, which is, this is what, what happens when it gets that bad and you don't uh, step back and, and say, hey, we need to rethink this abstraction. You say, well, I'll just try to touch as little as possible, and you end up making it worse by doing that. Not by touching as little as possible, but by not being thoughtful about where you, you know how, how things are working all together. But uh, anyway, so you asked about creative uh, solutions to these sorts of problems. Yeah, I, I remember when I, I started at a company that the only engineer, front-end engineer left, and I, I took their place. And I started seeing a lot of, or a couple of places where code was duplicated. So I actually found this tool. This was years ago. I can't remember what it was called. JS Inspector or something like that. Um, but it allowed me to find duplicate code uh, throughout the code base. So I just say, go find me. Uh, and I gave it some parameters on how, how close the variable name should be and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it found me a bunch of places throughout the code base uh, that where code had been copy pasted. And at that time in my career, copy paste was like the, the worst thing anybody could ever do. Now I have a much more pragmatic idea or thought uh, or uh, philosophy around that. But at the time I was just like, no, no copy paste anywhere. Everything should be abstracted. That was very dry. And uh, yeah, now I've moved to aha. But um, that, that actually was very helpful because the, these bits of code were so similar, I was able to find the abstractions that would be appropriate for uh, sharing code between these places. The, the biggest problem actually like that led me to this was I kept getting bug reports on certain features and I'd say it was fixed and then they'd come back and say, no, it's not fixed. And then I'd realize, oh, that's right. That's because this is duplicated over here. And so now I got to fix it over here. And then there were like some that were, had like five places where I had to go and fix the exact same bug. And so, yeah, that's that's where the idea to find that tool <laughs> came into play. So one of the topics that I really wanted to dig into with you was about effective learning, as you mentioned that you're primarily focused on education now. So for like for effective learning as as a software engineer, I know you produce content for developers in multiple mediums like video, written, audio, and podcasts. How do you, did you find your way into first like before we get into some of those projects you're working on? But how did you find your way into this? Did it, was it did you feel like it was a calling or something just resonated at one point? Yeah, you know I've been doing teaching since I can remember. Um, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, and growing up in that church, even like four-year-olds are expected to get up in front of, of their peers and, and speak and stuff. You know, and I, I loved doing that as a kid. I thought it was awesome. And uh, so getting up in front of people and speaking and, and sharing my thoughts and stuff, that's always been a very natural part of existence for me. Um, and so when I started learning uh, software, it was pretty natural for me to start teaching my classmates. So my, my first software class in college, I was tutoring. I, I volunteered to you know sign up on their little site as somebody that people could reach out for as a tutor. 
And then uh, when I learned AngularJS, I thought it was just the coolest thing. So I uh, borrowed some material from a coworker to teach my classmates AngularJS. I even got Firebase to sponsor like pizza and stuff. And I, so I got my classmates free pizza. It was awesome. Getting into it was just pretty natural. And uh, I started speaking at um, meetups and conferences and stuff. And, and I spoke at one meetup where uh, I talked about Jots with AngularJS for authentication. And that was recorded and put online. And then Egghead found, uh, saw that, John Lindquist, and he said, hey, turn that into a course for us. And I said, okay, I guess. And that went really, really well. And that's kind of, from there, it actually turned into not just something I do for fun, but something I actually can do for money. We'll be back with our interview with Kent in just a moment. Hello, it's me, it's Robbie. I want to take a quick moment just to say thank you for listening to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please, please, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers. No, in fact, go do that right now. Go post a link on Twitter, on LinkedIn, post something about it on TikTok, write a review on Apple Podcast. It would mean the world to me. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to that interview with Kent C. Dodds. So let's assume that there are several people sitting right now in the audience who find themselves working in the React ecosystem and are trying to make sense of best practices. I think one of the things, I don't work that, we have some projects that my team works on in the React world, but we're primarily Ruby on Rails shop and have been for a really long time. And so React, we've seen a lot of different JavaScripts frameworks come and go over the years, but React obviously has taken pretty big uh, hold in the, in the, um, in the mind share of the, the software engineering community on the front end. And one of the things that I've heard from people talk about it was just like, it didn't really, a lot of these JavaScript frameworks didn't have a lot of strong opinions about how to, like what they would say is consistently would be best practices, like coming through the framework in some ways. But yeah, that's a perspective I have on my end. I feel like Ruby on Rails, we have a a set of conventions and like values that we kind of try to align with. And so can you tell us a little bit about Epic React and what that does and how that might kind of speak to this? Yeah. Um, so Epic React is my, my mission is to make the world a better place. And I do a good job at that by teaching other people how to write quality software. So then they can build applications that hopefully make the world a better place. That's, that's my goal. And I was teaching all of these workshops about React because that was the thing I was super jazzed about. I teach, in fact, I'm wearing my React shirt right now. Um, I, I teach the things that I'm excited about. That's just like, you know, that I, I think most teachers should probably be doing that. Um, you know, don't, don't teach something you're not excited about. So um, I was teaching all these React workshops and I realized that I couldn't scale very well and my workshops weren't very accessible. Um, I was doing them all online remote. Uh, this is before COVID. I was doing the remote thing before it was cool. And, <laughs> and um, I realized that even though it was online, so it was accessible in that way, it just, my time was valuable. And so it was too expensive. I, I couldn't lower my prices enough to, to reach the people that I needed to be able to reach. And I couldn't scale, so I couldn't deliver as many workshops as people wanted. And so it was pretty natural because I was already doing a lot of recorded material. It was just a very natural thing to say, well, what if I just recorded all these workshops? And then I don't have to be present, so I can uh, reduce the price to make it more accessible. 
but also I can provide an enormous amount of value um, just in the way that I present this material. Uh, Epic React is unlike any online course that anybody has ever taken. Um, I'm certain of it. Hundreds of people have told me this. That is just really unique in the way that I present this material. It's a lot more like a semester-long class. Um, it's just a lot of material. It's all focused on retention. Um, I think uh, of all the things that I can do as an instructor, if you don't remember what I've taught you, then the whole experience was worthless. So that's my number one goal is retention. Um, how do I make sure that you remember this stuff? So anyway, uh, uh, I recorded all of the, the workshops after having given them many, many times and figured out all the questions that people typically ask so that I can preemptively answer those and, and uh, give supporting material, linked, links to blog posts and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, and that became Epic React. It's a collection of uh, technically 11 uh, individual workshops that I have given to thousands of developers. So it's cool. Nice. We'll definitely include links to that in the show notes and such. I'm curious as being someone that works in a technology that's been evolving, because I don't know how soon into the React launch and with how, how soon you started getting involved in it, but as the framework and the tooling has evolved, how has that impacted your your training materials? Yeah, absolutely. It totally has. Um, so React itself hasn't changed a ton since I, I first got involved in it. And actually, surprisingly, React is older than um, jQuery was when React was released. Uh, so React is actually a, a pretty long-lived framework, and I expect it to, uh, to be relevant for as long as writing UI code is relevant. Eventually, the computer's going to take over, and then React won't be relevant anymore. Or maybe the computers will be writing React. I don't know. <laughs> but React itself hasn't changed a ton. Hooks was a really big change in the last two years, but um, outside of that, it's been pretty, pretty steady. The ecosystem around it, though, is a different story. So like the, the tools that you use to build your application, that has changed a lot. And I've given workshops on Webpack and stuff like that. I'm no longer really in that game because now we have meta frameworks like Next.js and Remix um, that are just phenomenal. And I don't need to worry about build tooling anymore, which is great. I just use those and, and they take care of that for me. Um, but then we have the flux wars of like which state management library should I use? It turns out React is a state management library. And so maybe we didn't not all of us needed those uh, those tools, but we have them all the same. And so we bounced around a lot of things. I never really dove deep into teaching those uh, tools. I always felt like React was, was sufficient for most applications. And now we have React Query, which is a phenomenal uh, library for managing the server cache, and which is different from UI state. And so I put all of my server cache in React Query, manage my UI state with React, uh, just regular component state, and I'm golden. Only sometimes do you need uh, to bring in a, an extra library to help you with some uh, some th certain things. Uh, and, and some people like some smaller libraries. I, um, I have a, a friend who's really big on um, Zistand. Um, he actually is the author of React Query, that's Tanner Lindsley. And so he uses that for his, his UI state but yeah, I, I don't really bother teaching those things because most people can can get 99% of the way there just with React and, and React Query, which I do teach. And so, of course, I, I haven't been teaching that the whole time. This React Query is just a little over a year old. Well, maybe maybe just a year old now. So um, that's, that's a pretty recent addition. 
Uh, React Router has been stable pretty much. I mean, it's it's changed a little bit here and there, um, but it's actually a pretty stable technology. And so I've been teaching that one for a long time. Yeah, and then styling libraries have have kind of shifted around, um, and I've I've had to change some of that um, as we've gone through uh, over the years. And then the testing thing has changed quite a bit. And I'm I'm pretty involved in the testing ecosystem. Um, I made testingjavascript.com. And I bounced around a bunch of different frameworks until finally I landed at Jest. And I've been with Jest and Cypress for most of the time that I've been doing React, uh, so around five years. Nice. And I wanted to touch on that a little bit. You know, when it comes to, and you kind of mentioned this earlier on around like the test that you thought would be helpful, like you're kind of focusing more and more end to end, and um, integration type tests might be the most valuable, especially for someone coming to a project to wrap your head around how the application is supposed to work and you know, what the expectations are there, what, you know, when it comes to like the testing pyramid, is, is that, is that where you believe most engineers should be focusing their time or do you have a kind of a way to kind of divvy that up? You kind of recommend it's kind of like for those that are like, oh, we haven't really started writing tests yet, but we're curious about what advice do you offer them on that? Yeah. So the testing pyramid is a really popular philosophy around where you focus your time on testing where the testing pyramid was first introduced in that blog post at the bottom, he says it acts under the assumption that tools for integration tests are, are slow and flaky and, and there are some problems there. And if that is not the case, then you actually should maybe write more integration tests, which is something that nobody ever reads. But that's that's in the footnote. It says, like, we have this assumption. The assumption has changed, at least for the UI. So for building user interfaces, Integration test, uh, testing tools are great. And um, so that's where I recommend you spend most of your time. So I changed the shape of the pyramid to, to focus more on integration uh, level tests. And this isn't like integration between cert- multiple services, although I, I actually feel that's also most likely where you get the most bang for your buck on the back end. I'm talking about like UI, integration between multiple components. Uh, you render the whole page and, or the like app component, and then you interact with the everything on the screen there. But uh, another part of the testing story that the front end was missing is static testing. Uh, so like Java and, and you know, backend languages, like the te- testing pyramid didn't include anything about static typing because that was just like a given, right? Like, of course, it's going to be statically typed. Well, in the UI, we, of course, it's not. Like, it's, uh, it's JavaScript. And so I added another piece to the, uh, the original pyramid, uh, which is the base of static testing. So we have ESLint and TypeScript and Prettier as some static testing tools that we can use. Prettier is uh, technically a, a code formatter, but it can correct some mistakes. So I call it a static testing tool. So anyway, with this new shape, it, it looks a little bit like a trophy. So I created the testing trophy. Um, and that is where I, I focus most of my effort on uh, integration tests. Uh, I also my integration tests are typically longer, and I, I definitely assert on more than one thing. I, I perform more than one action in those. In my end-to-end tests, it's even more. That, that's more of a, an entire user flow, typically a happy path sort of thing. Integration test gets into a little bit of the sad path, and then unit tests are pretty much reserved for pure functions and, uh, and complicated bits of logic that I just really need to isolate to get a solid uh, read on my confidence there. Uh, so you you asked about if you're coming into a company or, or you're thinking about just getting started into testing. I actually do have a blog post about this. 
I have actually many blog posts about testing, <laughs> so like dozens. Um, but uh, basically what I suggest is that people start with the base of the trophy. So get in ESLint in there at least. And if you can get team buy-in, then get in Prettier. I can't even imagine life coding without Prettier. It's just like, who who uses uh, or who manually formats their code anymore? I just, I don't understand why you would do that. But uh, yeah, so get Prettier in there. And then TypeScript is a little bit of a bigger candy bar to chew. So I, I would recommend maybe holding off on that if you're not already using it um, before moving on to the next thing, which is end-to-end -end testing. So we go to the bottom of the trophy, then we jump up to the top, just write one end-to-end -end test that just pulls up your app and verifies that the your logo shows up or something. Just that one end-to-end -end test and, and get that running in CI and everything. Having just that one will just give you an enormous amount of confidence that you didn't have before. The fact that your build actually works, that your app actually renders, all of that, um, it's a huge boost to confidence. And then you can add more tests later, but uh, just having that one there. And then once you have that one, then add um, all of the tooling necessary for your unit and integration tests. And once all the tooling is set up, then people are a lot more willing to start writing and adding tests uh, to your code base. And so uh, then it just kind of becomes a natural thing. We're writing a new feature. Let's make sure it's tested. We're interacting with some old code. Let's go add some tests to it. And over time, you can increase the, the coverage in your code base. Some good advice there. Something you had mentioned a couple minutes ago around when you're writing tests, sometimes it'll perform multiple multiple actions like or test multiple things. Is that a UI type related thing, or do you think it's is that something you're doing because it's you think that helps offset some of the concerns around speed of spinning up the whole thing? Like, okay, we're going to interact with this one form field, and then we're going to go through the whole process, and then now we'll test the next form field. Is that kind of more of because of that, or? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally know what you are talking about. It um, the the main reason it, it, it there it's a couple of facets. Um, but if the traditional logic behind testing was you test one thing and only one thing, you know, you perform one action, you make one assertion, and then you have a totally separate test that does the next thing. the The reason that was the case is because. Uh, when a test fails, you need to have a, a nice error message. That's a responsibility of the testing framework. It's it's supposed to give you a nice error message. The The way that we got error messages uh, with older tools is all you would see is the, the title of the test. Sometimes you get a stack trace too, um, but that wasn't very helpful, especially if it's compiled or whatever. So um, so it, the just the typical recommendation was just one assertion per test. Uh, and, and only one uh, action per test. That's no longer really necessary because it, the testing tools have just advanced so well that it's very easy to find out which one of the assertions in this block of tests uh, caused the problem and, and even which action caused the problem. And so, yeah, that uh, old logic uh, no longer really holds water. So given that both are equal, um, on equal footing, you just think which one of these tests is easier to write and which one of them performs better. And in both cases, it's going to be the longer test. Uh, so I actually do have a blog post about this. It's called Write Fewer Longer Tests. Well, it's, it's to write fewer tests and make the tests that you do write longer. That's what, <laughs> but that was too long for the book, uh, title. So the idea is that um, when you do this, you end up having like syntactically easier to write code. Like the code is just, it, it reads easier. You're like, do this, then that, then this, then that. And it's just easier to understand what's going on. 
And then it also just is naturally faster because you don't have to spin up um, the same, you know, get yourself into that same state over and over and over again, but you can do it in just a handful of tests. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. So one of the things you were also, you know, because you have these educational, basically products that you have out there now, and you have, I know you have a pretty active Discord community and such as well. How much of your time are you kind of like allocating to this type of community building and? Yeah, yeah. I allocate uh, quite a bit of time to community building in part selfishly because I just, I get lonely and I like being around people that, that uh, are friendly. And my community is very friendly. I, I have, before I even got it started, I, as I was getting it ramped up, I created a bot that would onboard people. So if you join the community, the first thing that you are greeted is uh, with is this bot that will ask you some questions. And I, I ask you if you agree to the code of conduct, but then I ask you, I test you on the code of conduct to see whether you read it. <laughs> so, so because of the friction that I add to just joining the community in the first place, it filters out anybody who's just a drive-by who doesn't really care, and and you know the the kind of person who, you know, like if you have a, a neighbor who moves in and they're only going to be around for a month or two, they're not going to take care of things. They're just like whatever. I'll throw trash on the ground. Who cares? Uh, and so I only want people who are actually committed. And the result is a community that's just a really awesome place to be. Uh, and so I do a lot of work to cultivate that sort of a community, and it's worked out really well. It makes it's a place that I like to hang out. You know, we're almost ten thousand people. We have a thousand people online at any given time. It's a very active community, and uh, yeah, I probably I was actually just thinking about this today, and I think I spend about eighty percent of my time doing stuff um, for free. So that like doesn't directly impact the the bottom line. It it certainly indirectly impacts the bottom line. More people that I have in the community, the more people who are going to say, hey, I want to be part of this, uh, you know, have a course or whatever. But uh, but yeah, like and and the blog posts, they're all funnels. Um, but I I spend most of my time, the vast majority of my time, working on stuff that doesn't directly impact the bottom line, um, but is really a service to the community. And that's the way I like it. I. I really appreciate the people who actually do buy my uh, content, who enable me to uh, do this kind of giving back. That's nice. Does that bring you energy? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like the the challenges, I mean, it's it's not just like a, I'm the marketing team of a company and I'm just like doing that all the time. Like I, I'm coding uh, to to create these communities. Like the, that Discord bot is awesome. And it's it's got some really interesting things in there. I, I've um, learned a lot in the process of creating that. And, you know, I've got my website that has a lot of interesting things uh, a part, as a part of it too. I'm a coder, coder at heart. Like that's what I prefer spending my time doing. And, and I spend a lot of time on open source related things as well. Yeah, it, I, I would say it energizes me in so much that I'm able to feel sufficiently challenged 
Yeah, it's fun. Uh, I especially like it when I, I I just created this new thing in my Discord called Meetups. That's like Clubhouse except uh, through Discord enabled by my bot. And um, releasing a feature like that is super exciting. And seeing people use that, that's that's definitely invigorating. That's awesome. Is the uh, out of curiosity your onboarding bot an open source project? Yep. Yeah. It's all pretty much everything I work on is open source. So. Um, yeah, uh, people can can for. In fact, people have. I, I've got a couple of people who forked it and are using uh, the same process in their own communities. I think it's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I'm curious. Got me because um, I have a an open source project that has uh, has a number, a fair number of people that use the uh, Discord community. And I was thinking about the onboarding experience. We have something like welcoming, greeting information, but I don't know if you're familiar with OpenSea oh, oh, Show at all, by chance, or oh yeah 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 sure. So that's my my baby originally we adapted got into opening up a discord community a little over a year ago and it's been interesting to watch that grow because um, one of the other maintainers suggested it and i was like oh, do people really want to spend time on like another chat tool talking about this all day apparently they do and i'm like oh cool so i'm like all right that's great yeah and actually if you do want to use the bot i just or, or i'm almost done rewriting it all to typescript so it's a lot easier to use and, and it, it's actually surprisingly well tested it's very difficult to test a Discord bot. Yeah, quite difficult. But um, I had one contributor who just spent a lot of time um, figuring out a good way to, to write tests for it. So it's pretty well tested as well. That's awesome. Which leads me into my next question. Do you find yourself more on the team, more on team rewrite or team refactor? Ooh, uh, that's an interesting question. I find myself, especially when I like... I find myself being on Team Greenfield. <laughs> so like, I, I typically start new projects and I, I do my best to make it a maintainable uh, code base and then I hand it off to somebody else and I move on to the next thing. But if I'm, if I'm sitting in something and I'm like, ah, there's something wrong with this project, I'm definitely on Team Practicality. Um, so I, when I was working at Alianza before I joined PayPal, it was an AngularJS code base and I'd, I'd been working on it for a year and it, it was doing fine for the most part, we had some pretty severe performance problems because AngularJS, <laughs> but um, for the most part, it was okay. A Angular 2 was coming eventually. Um, React was uh, coming up in popularity, and I really wanted to get into React. And so I said, well, you know, there are some serious performance problems here uh, that React could totally solve. I'd like to rewrite this to React. And so I went to my boss and I said, hey, what do you think the chances are that we could do a rewrite Especially with Angular coming up, uh, we're basically going to have to rewrite to that anyway. Um, so if we're going to do a rewrite, we may as well just do it in React because I think React is better. And he said, you know, I just don't think we have the time to do that. I didn't argue or, or scream or, you know, throw a fit. I was like, yep, yeah, I think you're right, actually. We just, this is not an important enough thing relative to the other important things we need to do. Uh, and so in that situation, it was just not team rewrite or team refactor, just team keep going. <laughs> so yeah, I, I try to be really practical and, and acknowledge the fact that the code isn't what matters. Um, the product is what matters. And sometimes what you need is uh, to, to refactor or even rewrite the code, but it all comes down to which one of these decisions is gonna be best for the product, not what's best or, or what you want to do as an engineer. So I have a couple of quick last questions for you, but one, I want to get some advice from you for the audience. And so that speaks to kind of more around what you've been doing the last few years of creating content and sharing content. You mentioned 80% of your time is producing and providing free thoughts and ideas to the community. And that helps you, you know, indirectly helps you sell 
for your products and services that you're offering. So let's imagine there's a few people out there who know a lot about and can get really deep about some topics and based on their experience in the industry. And they're curious about finding some ways to share that knowledge with their peers in the community, but are maybe feeling a little intimidated about maybe spinning up a blog, recording a podcast or a screencast, or even speaking at a conference or giving like a webinar online or a workshop or something outside of you know, they, they could maybe talk with amongst their, their coworkers about something and teach people on a whiteboard or something. But what advice could you offer them on how to like kind of push through that? Sounds so given that you sounds like you've been doing this since you were a, a kid to some degree and been able to build off those things. But what advice could you offer those that are kind of like didn't really have that experience earlier on? Yeah, yeah, definitely acknowledge that this is not a problem that I share, but I, I can give some ideas of things I would try, I guess, if the, I was in a situation like that. And first of all, I should say that it's, it's, for me at least, I am always nervous before I give a talk. It doesn't matter. Like sometimes I'm shaking just because I'm excited to speak up in front of people. doesn't mean I don't uh, get nervous. Uh, I, I absolutely do. So the things that have worked for people that I've talked with and, and some ideas that I have is make a commitment, like even before you're, you're actually ready to present the information. Uh, one of the first Actually, the first meetup I ever went to, I was speaking because I just made the commitment. I said, hey, I noticed you're looking for speakers. They always are. <laughs> and you, so you say, hey, I'm willing to speak about whatever. And they, I mean, maybe if you're in San Francisco, I know those, they're always really busy and stuff. I don't know what it's like with COVID now, but um, but uh, at least where I was, they were always begging for speakers. And so it was really easy to, uh, to just say, hey, I can speak. And they said, what on? Never mind. I don't care. <laughs> You're going to speak? Yes. Great. So you, you just make that commitment to do that. If th that's not where you're at, then you can just tell your boss, hey, I learned this thing or can I do a, a brown bag, you know, uh, bring lunch to work or whatever. And uh, yeah, so that, like there are various th strategies that you can employ to, to kind of force yourself into a commitment. Uh, and once you're committed, then the presentation preparation is natural. It's almost a form of survival. And so like there will be nerves and you'll, you'll be nervous about it and that's fine. But uh, another thing to consider is if you're not into speaking in front of people, uh, you can record a, a video just like it doesn't take a lot of equipment or anything. You just use your, your MacBook or whatever um, and just start recording and uh, creating that way. YouTube is free um, and you just upload it to YouTube and who cares if nobody looks at it? it this is this is my secret to what I know. My secret is that I teach everything that I learn and that solidifies in my mind what I understand and what I don't and forces me to, to dive deeper. And so even if nobody looks at your stuff at all, that's irrelevant because you solidified in your mind what you're trying to learn. And so, yeah, don't worry about getting an audience or whatever. Uh, and that's another thing. If you if you actually do want to get an audience, um, you should also not focus so much on that, um, but just focus on being consistent. The audience will come if the stuff that you're creating is good. You know, over time, may, maybe the first stuff you create is no good. Um, everybody's learning, but over time, you'll develop the experience of, and you'll know what's good, and you'll you'll be better at it. And so, with the consistency comes the audience. It's it's just natural. And so, yeah. And then another thing, a mistake that I see creators make sometimes is um, they ask the audience what the audience wants. And I mean, that's that's fine, I guess. Uh, but you need to be jazzed about what you're doing because you're jazzed about it. Like, so 
it's way easier to teach something that you're excited about um, than to just try to be artificially excited about what the audience wants. So I, I pretty much like I, I take feedback and stuff. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll think about that. But I, I'm not going to teach anything I'm not super excited about. I feel like that. Oh, uh, and another thing is writing uh, has been really helpful for me too. So you can write a, in a blog and who cares if nobody reads it? Uh, it forces that content creation forces you to learn it a lot better than you would all otherwise. So it's always, I always find it interesting how, like if you, regardless of the medium that you end up using or mediums, if you go through multiple of them or actually even just post on medium. Uh, but like, as you do things, like it's interesting. I, I realized over the years that I might be like, oh, I really want to focus more on writing. But then I'm like, I sit there and I'm like, okay, I'm just not really jazzed about using your language there, uh, about the topics that I thought I wanted to write about. And so I'm like, so what they kind of like, well, I kind of push them off. And then I don't have like an, another list of things that I am super excited to talk about. And then I get invited to speak on a, like be a guest on a podcast. And then someone hits a question with me and then we talk about it. I forget about it for a few months and it gets published. And then I'm listening to that episode and I'm like, I should write a blog post about that. I got really excited about that topic. And I'm like, I never would have thought to write about that, but apparently I had a lot to say about it at the time. So, <laughs> yeah. so that's another way about thinking about like, but it's in terms, in terms of just thinking about like, even if you as coworkers, if you're talking about and you find yourself getting energized to talk about something, share that, like just capture that while it's inter you're energized about it and then just throw it up somewhere. If anything, again, like to solidify your learning, but also for your own benefit to go back and reference it later. Like one of the things that I learned early on with blogging was like, if I couldn't figure something out from the documentation or something, I would like, well, I, someone else might have the same problem. So I might as well throw up a blog post that speaks to how I answered this riddle and maybe someone else will find it. Or later on, I can go back and search for it later. And, and I know how to find it again. Like, how did I do that last time? Oh yeah, that's right. I threw it on my blog. Good suggestions there. So a couple of quick last questions for you. What non-software, non-technical book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? Oh, anything written by Brandon Sanderson, but that's uh, fantasy. Uh, so probably not what you're uh, looking for. You know, it, it really depends. I, I'd honestly have to look up a, a list of all of the, the books that I've got. I, I listen to a lot of books. Um, let me see, because I, I just wrote my uh, review of 2020. And I um, put down all, all the books that I listened to. Uh, let me just see if there's anything that stands out. Yeah, actually, a lot of these stand out. So I'd just recommend go check out the 2020 interview. It's, yeah, there are lots of stuff in there. I'll, I'll include a link to that. Track that down. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Um, my newsletter is the best. Uh, so you go to kencdots.com, scroll down to the bottom. You can sign up for the newsletter. Um, I send out an uh, email every week uh, that's filled with my thoughts about software. Um, I also tweet a lot. And then my Discord is pretty active. I, I'm on there all day. And you can find all of that at my website, kencdots.com. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Kent. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thank you. It's been awesome.